Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Do you remember like in the like mid-2000s when Randy Lerner, for whatever reason, was really good friends with G.E. Smith from the Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live band. And the band, and they would play on the field. But there wasn't one person in that stadium who was like, God, we really need a rally right now. What do we need to see on the field to pump this crowd up and take it to the next level? Where's the band leader from Saturday Night Live in the 90s? I need him rocking me into this next quarter. And nobody said that, but Randy Lerner made him his own little platform and stuff as if we would just all be over the moon. Randy, how about find a coach? How about find a coach instead? At the end of the 2004 season, the Browns had fired their second head coach, Butch Davis, were 4-12 and and in desperate need of any kind of stability. Preferably someone who understood the circumstances and ideally someone who had already won a lot in the NFL. Well, hello again and welcome to my cooking show. I have a very special guest today. His culinary skills are legendary throughout the NFL. My very special guest, Coach Bill Belichick of the Cleveland Browns. Bill, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Mike. Nah, it wasn't Bill Belichick. You know that. We already fucked that up. If you don't know by now, right before the Browns left in 96, their head coach was, in fact, Belichick. Like soon-to-be six-time Super Bowl winning New England Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick. I know we have a very uh, special recipe. They one you, you've held secret for many years, but you're going to share it with us today. Right, it's the BBPBJ. BBPBJ, what is that? Bill Belichick's peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <sighs> How divine. Belichick couldn't and probably still can't cook for shit, but he can definitely coach. Whole NFL coaching careers have been made simply by working alongside Belichick. And for the next few seasons, two of these Belichick disciples will get a shot from Lerner to try and right the ship. Randy Lerner's new GM, Phil Savage, was originally hired by Belichick in 91 as a defensive assistant and later transitioned to scouting and personnel. I was the first one to be part of the original Browns, leave and go to the Ravens, and then come back to the new Browns. I'd interviewed for five GM jobs. And then the Browns would just seem like, okay, this is the one that I should take. Savage's number one job was to interview and hire a head coach. His number one target was former Browns defensive coordinator and current defensive coordinator with Belichick's Pats and soon to be three-time Super Bowl champion, Romeo Cornell. Now, I might have had one Super Bowl ring on. I don't think that I had, you know, all five of them. I did have a few pelts on the wall, and so I think that that helped. And then the fact that the interview went well, that helped also. 
So, could Romeo save the Browns from infighting, an absentee owner, and a perpetual lack of talent? I mean, probably not, based on how many episodes are still left of this show. But let's find out anyway. Welcome to Brownstown. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After the 2004 season, Randy Lerner saw what had happened when he gave Butch Davis control of personnel decisions, and he thought maybe, just maybe, giving a head coach total control over the roster again may be a bad idea. That's why he hired Savage, to hire a better coach than he could. Then they hired me. Then that's when we interviewed Romeo and Mike Nolan and Jim Bates and Terry Rabisky and Russ Grimm. Savage had been a scout with the Browns when the Browns moved to Baltimore. And now he returned home to Cleveland to try and restore their good name with a good hire. We were settled on Romeo for the most part, but we were having to wait until after the Super Bowl. I felt like the real positives for him were, A, he had an impeccable resume. B, his character was very high. But C, I felt like following Butch Davis, Butch had almost been the head coach and the GM. And that is a hard role to take on because what you're saying as the GM upstairs is going to be different than what you're saying to the players downstairs as the coach. I felt like that Romeo, as the head coach, could reestablish a trust, a believability in that chair. I just felt like that he would establish a trust with our players. Good character, trustworthy. These are not just posters that hang in your elementary school library. They're what set Romeo Cornell apart from other coaches. Brown's defensive lineman, Sean Smith, thought of him more like a football family man. Like, he's more than just a football coach. He's like a dad. Like, Father's Day, I text him. He texts me back all the time. And to a point where we was texting back and forth a lot, you know, and just checking in on him, just making sure he's like, hey, you all right, Sean? Just making sure you're all right. You don't get that with every coach that you play for in the NFL, for one, and just the relationship you have. Like, I used to talk to Lerac more so about life, forget football, about life, about being a dad, juggling certain different things, and just overcoming adversity all the time. This isn't to say that Rack, that's what the cool kids call him, didn't have an impressive football resume. He'd been the defensive coordinator first on the Browns in 2000, then with the Patriots for their run of three Super Bowls in 2001, 2003, and the previous season in 2004. Plus, the guy had been around the block. He'd seen it all. I was special teams coach. I was the defensive line coach. I was defense coordinator before I became the head coach. And those early assignments, you were just concerned about that assignment. 
I'm, I was only concerned about special teams. Then you moved to become the head coach, and now you're in charge of the whole organization. In pro football now, that organization is a, a huge organization. It's security. It's the media. It's the team store. It's the trainers. It's managing the flight, schedules, and all of those things that kind of take away from football, to tell you the truth, you know, and you don't get to coach as much. When I got the job, one of the first things that they wanted to know from me is what color did I want to paint the walls in the locker room? (laughs) Well, hey, uh, color walls, white, you know, paint them white. You have to have thought about situations and then come up with an explanation of what you think needs to be done. So to recap, we're six seasons into this expansion with a record of 30 and 66. The son of the original owner has fired everyone and done a total factory reset. Sounds like back to square one to me. I was a first-time head coach. We had a first-time owner. We had a first-time president. We had a first-time GM. Just like a team of players, they have to grow together. Well, management has to grow together as well, and they have to get on the same page. And it's not always easy to get on the same page. If you don't get on the same page, it won't work. And so we had to go through those growing pains as an organization. First on the to-do list for the new GM head coach pair of Cornell and Savage was the Baron roster. Bad drafts by Davis and the original regime Coupled with a mad salary purge before the 4 season, had the Browns covered bare. Even a Belichick disciple needed his ingredients. I remember we were walking out to the first mini camp, and I'm like, when's the varsity showing up? This is not good. Because the team, just from a body standpoint, didn't look anything like the team we had just left. And it's like, we got a lot of work to do. You do feel like you're playing catch up. So you feel like you've got to hit on those high picks and you got to be willing to go out there and fill in some blanks with free agency, which is a whole level of risk reward that the teams that draft well don't have to worry about. The thing about free agency is a general rule. You're paying A money for B level players. You're paying B money for C level players. I mean, for the most part, you're always overpaying in that market. And we were willing to do it because we had so many holes to fill in. The second part of the roster building, one you never think of is scheme fit. You can have the best nose guard in the league, but if you ask him to play defensive tackle in a 4-3, it's not going to go very well. It's like asking Guy Fieri to make sushi. Not ideal for anyone. So talented players who might have been on the Browns roster weren't necessarily the right players because a new coach means a new scheme. I think that happens sometimes when there's changeover. Sometimes you have to go in between systems. And so in going in between systems, I have a three, four background. But then when I got there to Cleveland, I combined three, four and the four, three. And then we played under defense with the personnel that we had. We kind of majored in that for that year. The simplest way to fix the talent problems was through free agency. The Browns rented the decaying arm of 10-year NFL vet Trent Dilfer to be their quarterback so they could focus on fixing the rest of their putrid offense in the draft. They had not really gotten to see what last year's first-round pick, Kellen Winslow, could do as he broke his leg in the second game of the 4 season. He then missed 2005 after tearing his ACL in a motorcycle accident. So, they still wouldn't. 
but they wanted a playmaker on the edges for Dilfer to throw to and to open up the middle of the field for Winslow. That meant Michigan wide receiver Braylon Edwards. I'd been to a, a live Michigan game, and Braylon put on a show that night. And we're all biased towards things that we see in person. Sometimes it can be good. Sometimes it can be bad. We just felt like that, hey, Braylon is the best player in this draft. And in those days, you couldn't move. You could not get out of the top five because the contracts were so heavy. Wide receiver is the last link in the chain. I mean, you've got to have the line the protection, the quarterback that can get him there, the defense that can get stops to get the football back to your offense. And, you know, it's almost like a cherry on top type of position if you don't have some of the other things in place. And I think that led to some of the frustration that Braylon ended up experiencing in Cleveland. I think he could have had an even better career in a, in a different sort of circumstance. Braylon Edwards showed up at the Browns facility, six foot three, 214 pounds with a chip on his shoulder but not for any reason that made sense to Browns tight end Aaron Shea. He said some stupid shit. They don't like me because I went to Michigan. And other people were like, well, we'd like Steve Ebert. We'd like Shea. We'd like Leroy Horn. Right. I mean, like, leave him, man. You're a blue collar town. You go out there, do your job, work your ass off, and they'll like you. Don't be stupid. Braylon just couldn't, like, let that go. The NFL is finally back, and there's also finally no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find tickets. TickPick is your best choice to buy football tickets because they save you money by never charging any service fees. I mean, ever. Because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, got rid of all those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge, which let them guarantee the best prices on all of their NFL tickets. Don't believe it? If you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. That's right, 110% difference. TickPick is the exclusive ticketing partner for Brownstown and Blue Wire Network. I gotta go find some Browns tickets against the Steelers on Monday night to watch the Browns kick their tail. Visit TickPick.com slash Brownstown today and use the promo code Brownstown to save $10 on your first order of NFL tickets. In Ohio, we're not huge fans of the school up north, but Shea is 100% right. A Wolverine could have caught the winning TD over Ohio State, and as long as they helped the Browns win, all would be forgotten. But for that to happen, Michigan would actually have to beat the Buckeyes, you know, sometime this decade. Now, according to Sean Smith, what made Braylon Edwards upset was that he wasn't the center of attention in Cleveland. I mean, Braylon was a prima donna. Yeah, he won attention. I mean, that's just who he was. Be easy, but I still, you know... To the day, still cool dude. I had nothing to with him, but he didn't value football. He was so worried about people liking him more than just dominating the game of sport of football. If he had worried about playing dominating on the field, he would have more success off the field. The city, everybody knows the city of Cleveland is LeBron. He's from here, hometown hero. Brandon, you from up the road, Michigan. You can't, come on, that's peaches and apples, man. Come on, you know that. You can't compete with LeBron. Who can compete with LeBron? Hell, Josh Cripps could even compete with LeBron. And Josh Cripps, pro bowler and everything. Speaking of Cribs. Zigzags right, 30, 35, 40. He's wide right, could go. He's to the 40. He's right sideline, 30. With the kicker to beat. He's to the 10, the 5. Touchdown, Josh Cribs. Cleveland's best new player didn't even come in the draft that year. He fucking walked on. 
Romeo Cornell sitting in a meeting full of 30 guys, and they had about two spots. This is Cribs. Two spots, meaning one to play practice squad, and the other, he probably make the team. Romeo Cornell said these words. He said, if you can beat a double vice, go down the field, and make a tackle on an NFL punt returner, you have a spot on this football team. And I was like, I can do that. And then I turned to, to one of the guys. I was like, what's a double vice? I ain't never played special teams in my life. Receiver, I didn't do this stuff. But when they lined me up at special teams, all I had to do was go make a tackle. I had no specific job, see ball, get ball. They didn't have no inkling that I was going to turn out the way I was on the team at all. I was pulling face masks, <laughs> chopping throats, punching. Because if you get blocked, they're going to be like, oh, I got to find somebody else who can get off. And it's just that simple. That's one thing that I grab. If you don't do everything, you're dispensable. You can get out of there easily. So I made sure, Dre, I was able to do everything, man, everything I could. Cribs fought for every inch he got. Braylon Edwards fought LeBron's entourage at a nightclub. The Browns made Cribs a local legend. Braylon, not so much. But both of these players were acquired, played, and thrived under Romeo Cornell and Phil Savage. But not right away. In Romeo's first season, 2005, the Browns went 6-10. and 10, An improvement on their previous 4-12 campaign, but nothing inspiring. December was particularly rough. It included Braylon tearing his ACL and a Christmas Day 41-zip ass whooping at home to the Steelers. Now seven seasons in, the Browns were cementing a bad reputation with both fans and league personnel. I knew that they recently didn't have a team, and then all of a sudden they did have a team. So I was aware of that, and that simply there were an NFL football team that weren't that good. To Aaron Shea and his friends, it was more than just a reputation. It was a curse. Some of my friends would say, like, there's a jinx with the Browns. And like you start thinking, like, shit. Like, I remember going to play against the Bears. We get the onside kick. Mm-hmm. Like, no fucking lie. We get the ball. We have the ball. And I'm on, I'm on the hands team. And they go, no, no, Bears ball. I'm like, no, no, but we have the ball. Right. And, and then I remember the ball gets tipped. And uh, I want to say Mike, Mike Brown. Mike Brown, yes. safety. He got it and picked six. The Chicago Bears scored 20 points in the last three minutes and 22 seconds to win it in overtime. You already heard about Bottlegate and the Dwayne Rudd helmet toss game. Hell, in their one playoff game, they blew a 17-point lead with under 20 minutes to play. The wild losses could have gotten out of hand and doomed the Browns before kickoff. But Romeo Cornell doesn't play that shit, homie. He knew the best way to rid the Browns of the funk was to let the players be themselves and bust out of it. Personalities like Cribs and Sean Smith brought the swagger they needed. The thing is, I never stopped talking. I didn't give a fuck. You could have beat me and I still was going to talk my shit. No matter what, I was the same dude every day. If I didn't feel like practice, you knew I was in practice. It got to the point where I was good at what I did and Romeo took care of me. No matter what. Yo, I felt like I was the baddest motherfucker. I might not been, but I walked like I did. I played like I did and you couldn't stop me. But... As the team played through the pain in 05, there was a storm brewing behind the scenes in the front office. Not between Romeo Cornell and Phil Savage, but between Phil Savage and Browns president, John Collins. I got there in January, and I would say by June, there were already some things that were going on or had been said behind the scenes or what have you. It finally came to a head. It was the Friday before the last regular season game. 
I left the practice field and a player said something to me about, hey, you know, I hear you might be out of here. And I'm like, I'm not sure what you're really talking about. And then you go upstairs and you see your name running across the ESPN ticker. And it's like, okay, this might be real. Ultimately, by that Friday night, we sort of had a meeting of the minds and said, look, we need to focus on the game Sunday and put all this aside for the next 48 hours and then we can reassess everything on Monday. The Browns actually didn't fire Savage, instead opting for continuity for once. The next season, in 06, the team actually did worse and went 4-12. But the Cornell-Savage connection had been steadily restocking the Browns with talent in the 05 and 06 drafts. They drafted Cameron Wembley and Dequell Jackson. They signed Joe Juravicious and linebacker Willie McGinnis. They even picked up Dave Zacido as a punter to shore up the kicking game. But they had ignored one glaring hole on their roster, quarterback. The early Cornell Savage era quarterbacks were Dilfer, Charlie Fry, and Derek Anderson. Two nobodies and a journeyman. They weren't bad, but they weren't really anybody. Hence the 10 and 22 record between them. In 07, they'd finally been able to tackle the most important position on the football field again, quarterback. But they were going to make everybody wait. After waiting over four hours and 10 minutes in the green room, Brady Quinn is about to come out on the stage and grab the jersey of his home state team. Pack your draft day suit. We're headed to another terrible NFL draft. My grandfather got me an old Bernie Kosar uniform. I had the helmet. I had the whole jersey, pants, everything. I used to put that on, wear that all the time. That's next time on Brownstown. Brownstown is hosted and reported by me, Andre Knott. Produced and written by Harry Swartow and Peter Moses. Edited by Isabel Jocelyn. Music by Brian Decker. Production coordination by Devin Shepard. And production assistance by Miriam Khan, Michael Ehrlich, Shweta Surendran, and Zach Jackson. Brownstown is a Blue Wire podcast and executive produced by Peter Moses and John Yells. See you next time.